Well, thank you guys. I was, I guess, so eager to get up here. It's a little early, huh? Or the shortest speaker in history, which would be terrible. Um, I'm just technical announcement. My computer's acting up a little bit, so I'm going to control this up here, and then Kanan. I guess I'm going to do some cool pointing up there, and then he'll he'll change the slide. So hopefully we'll keep it in sync. Um, but just wanted to tell you real quick three things that you need to know about me. Number one is I really do have an amazing family, and I'll tell you a little bit more about them later. But I, I am unashamedly passionate about my kids. I've got six amazing kids, and so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that. The other thing is I love where I work. I love that I get to work for Compassion International, that my job is actually to help release children from poverty in the name of Jesus. And it's a, it's a pretty sweet thing to be able to have your passions and vocation line up. And the third thing, and I heard this might be a little more controversial than I thought, I am a huge, diehard Red Sox fan. Good. And so you can see this, this picture of Fenway. That's, that's how I envisioned Fenway, right? And I've never actually been there. I tried to arrange my trip to get here a little early and take a tour yesterday, and I had all kinds of flight problems, got in late, so I didn't get to get into the park. But, but this is kind of how I imagine it, right? All the amazing stuff that's happened inside that building, the incredible history over 100 years, uh, you know, all the different plays and players that have been on that field, and I just kind of visualize it this way. And then last night, Corey was nice enough to take me around and drove me around, and, and I saw what it uh, actually looks like. I thought, wow, that looks like you know a used car garage or something. It's these amazing statues and then against a brick wall. And, and so I was kind of like, man, the inside is so cool, or at least I imagined it to be cool with all this history, but the outside's kind of like yucky. And that, of course, makes me think of God's heart for the poor. All right, that was probably the worst transition you're ever going to hear in your life, right? But <laughs> somehow I've got to get from Red Sox, which I could talk about all day, to, to actually talk about what I'm here for, and that's God's heart for the poor. So I'm going to try to tie him in. You guys can... Tell me how well I do. There's 300 verses in Scripture that talk about the poor and the fact that we are to be involved in social justice, that we're to care for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the alien in our midst. It's very clear, right? God's call to us is very clear. So I'm going to share just a couple of passages with you. The first one is Isaiah 58. Thanks, Canaan. And this is not the whole, the whole chapter. Um, but Isaiah 58 really starts with God's admonishment to his people that they're living a false religion, that they are all about what they look like and what it looks like on the outside and how important, how spiritual they are. And so specifically here, it's talking about the practice of fasting. Because see, the people were fasting in a way that everybody would notice. It's kind of like going to an all-you-can-eat buffet and just grumbling all the time that your stomach hurts. And when everybody asks, hey, why aren't you eating? It's like, oh, well, I'm a pretty holy guy, and so I'm fasting right now. So I can't eat like the rest of you swine because I'm fasting because I'm really close to the Lord. And right, it's all about what we look like. And it wasn't about trying to draw close to God. It wasn't trying to discern his will. It was really all about what they looked like on the outside. How spiritual did they look? And so he goes on in Isaiah and he says, that's not it. That's not the fasting that I want. But here's what it really looks like. If you really want to know what it looks like to follow me, it's this. Loose the chains of injustice. Untie the cords of the yoke. Set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor and the wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, to clothe them? See, God's pretty clear that really living out faith always involves caring for the poor and the vulnerable. Now we've got another verse. This is from Isaiah also, Isaiah 61. And this one is important because this is the first verse that Jesus said in his public ministry. So as his public ministry started, and he's in Nazareth, and he's in a synagogue, and he pulls out a scroll. I don't know if they were on shelves or in baskets. I don't know how he got it. But he pulls out a scroll, and he reads reads this verse. 
And you can kind of anticipate that everybody was wondering, what is this, this guy going to say? He's a new rabbi. Where, what is he going to preach on? What is he going to say? And, and Jesus says this, right? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free. It's very clear that Jesus' entire ministry started with this proclamation to care for the poor and needy in our midst. As I said, 300 verses of Scripture, 300 that talk about the poor and the needy. We were not supposed to miss this. Just in case we did, I want to share one more. It's James 127. And I love James 127 because it's kind of like this just cuts right through it and makes it really clear. If you want to know what religion looks like, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless, it's this. Look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Widows and orphans are the most vulnerable people group on the planet. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to follow God, you need to be about these things. So I think Scripture is clear. The question is, what do we do? Right? What's the current state of the needy in our world today? So I've got a couple of statistics that I want to show you. The first one is this 3.5 million. 3.5 million is the number of children who die every year from preventable causes. Preventable causes like malnutrition, pneumonia, malaria, diarrhea. Quick show of hands, who's ever had diarrhea? Hey, God bless you guys for raising your hands. I didn't think anybody would. And obviously the rest of you are lying, right? We've all had it. You need two things in the United States to combat diarrhea, right? A bottle of Gatorade is helpful. Kind of get those electrolytes back. And the other thing is hopefully a really loud bathroom fan, right? So nobody knows. But that's all you need. But it's amazing to think that hundreds of thousands of kids die from diarrhea. We're in a world where that ought not be so. That's, that's a matter of injustice. We've got the ability to solve these things, and yet we don't. And hundreds of thousands, as you can see here, millions of kids dying for no reason. And this is kind of the stupid, ugly side of poverty. Right? This is the side that we know we can change, but we just don't. Let me throw another statistic at you. There are 400 million children living in extreme poverty. Extreme poverty is defined primarily economically. That's a dollar and a quarter a day, trying to live on a dollar twenty-five a day. And the reality is you can't live on a dollar twenty-five a day. That threshold was defined to say anything below that, you cannot provide for the basic necessities of life. There are 400 million kids that find themselves in that day-to-day situation. Now, what about orphans? The Bible talks about orphans. There are 153 million orphans in the world today. Now, the good news, if there could be good news when we talk about orphans, is that orphan means somebody who has lost one or both parents. So likely a lot of these kids at least have one parent. The numbers on double orphans, those kids who have no adult in their life, is somewhere in the neighborhood of 17.8 million. Now, there's a big asterisk there, and there's a big asterisk because we really don't know what that number is. So I'd like to read you a quick little statement from the Christian Alliance for Orphans about this statistic. It says, one of the greatest weaknesses in global orphan estimates is that they include only orphans that are currently living in homes. They don't count the 2 to 8 million children living in institutions, nor do the estimates include the vast number of children who are living on the streets. Many estimate that to be upwards of 100 million kids. Kids that are involved in trafficking, participating in armed groups, or even exploited for labor. Thus, the global orphan statistics significantly underestimate the number of orphans worldwide. These are big numbers, right? When we look at statistics, usually that just kind of shuts us down and it numbs us because it's so big we don't know what we can do about it. 17, 8 million, that's a problem, that's too bad. But what do we actually do? So I'd like to kind of get small here with you guys and, and tell you a story of, of a little boy I met. His name is Thibisu. And I met Thibisu in 2009 in Swaziland. 
Now, Swaziland, if, if you've heard of it, it's a very, very small country. It's in the southern part of Africa. It's primarily known for its incredible poverty and its HIV prevalency rate. So I was there with our church, and our church was just trying to set up a little feeding area for kids in Swaziland. And so we were going to try to learn kind of the customs and the, and the people in place and see what can we do to come alongside and to help them develop themselves up out of this crushing poverty, and, and what can we do to combat HIV-AIDS. See, Swaziland has an average life expectancy of 32 years. The adult population, according to the World Health Organization, is between 40 and 60% HIV positive. Half of the population, half of the adult population is HIV positive. Sabisu lives in a town, Mahalabanani. Mahalabanani has an unemployment rate somewhere between 80 and 95%. Right? When you find somebody who has work, that's the small, small minority of this community. It is a tough, tough place to live. And on top of that, while there's a lot of great people, there's a lot of good things happening in Swaziland. There's, there's Swazi nationals, there's people from South Africa coming and trying to help because the need is so desperate. But the reality is there's some cultural things within Swaziland and in a lot of places in Africa that make it incredibly difficult to have any long-term success in batting HIV. And for Swaziland, it's a prevalence of witch doctors and animistic religions. And how that plays out, we heard several stories. We heard one story about a, a community that was getting tested for HIV. And the good news was that antiretrovirals, right, the treatment for AIDS, the treatment that suppresses, makes AIDS go to sleep in your body, was available to all these people, but they had to be tested to know who was positive to get on the medicine. And so when this clinic came through and was testing this village, person after person was HIV positive. So much so that the witch doctor said, they're not actually testing you for HIV, they're shooting it into your arms, and he convinced the entire village to stop being tested. We heard another story about a grandmother who was caring for three kids because I said that adult population is, was ravaged by HIV. So you find children, hundreds of children, and you find these go-go's, these grandmothers who are caring for as many orphans as they can. And this one particular go-go, she was HIV positive, caring for three kids in her home. She was starting to get on her ARVs, and again, the witch doctor convinced her that she needed to stop that. The spirits were mad at her for being on the ARVs, and so she stopped, and the next message we heard, she had died, and these three kids were completely on their own. And there's another particularly despicable lie that happens around HIV. And in Swaziland, there are some that believe that if you are HIV positive and if you have sex with a virgin, that you will be cleansed from your HIV. Imagine what that does to this community. Right? Already a community where adults are largely absent, and now you've got this belief. It's into that... Oops. Sorry, that's my beautiful family. But you go back to Sabisu. It was in that situation that I met Thibisu. And he was one, as I said, of hundreds of kids that we saw. And I took this picture of him mainly because he was just so cute. And he kept kind of popping up from place to place. So I finally asked, tell me about Thibisu. What's his story? And they said, well, not surprisingly, he's a double orphan. He's completely on his own. And he has really struggled because everybody in this village, in this little area, is so stretched that there's nowhere for him to go, nowhere for him to stay. So he's homeless. And every night he tries to find out where he can stay, where he can be protected. Food is a daily struggle for him. And then to make matters worse, they said that not only is Thibisu a double orphan, he's actually the head of his household. He's got a younger sibling that he is in care of. Now this is to put a face on those statistics. Right? And I think it's easy for us when we hear statistics to dismiss them, but when we hear stories, we're moved, right? Some of you are probably angry because I'm not going to tell you the rest of his story. And you want to know what happens. And you probably are thinking, I would love to do something. Right? And I can do something. 
I've had a great opportunity to be able to travel around the world with compassion and take sponsors out to see the work that we do. And, and everybody, when they meet these kids, when they hear these stories, they are so moved that they want to get active immediately. And it's, can I take them home? What can I do? How can I care for them? And I get that. That's kind of our natural response, right? And for me, I get that because that was something that motivated me. Thanks, Kanan. It motivated me in how we built our family. So as you look at this picture, you probably notice a couple of things about our family. Number one, my son who's in the middle has an enormous head. It's huge. I mean, it's like twice the size of my little kid's heads, and we, we can't find caps for him or anything. We actually weighed it one time. It's 57 pounds. He's got a huge head. Other than that, other than that, you might see that we're a transracial family, right? We've, we've got three adopted kids. Damon, who's the one in green. He's obviously very happy to be in this photo. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of bad. That's actually his smile. That's about as good as it gets. But Damon we adopted out of the foster care system when we lived in Los Angeles. The other two boys are from Ethiopia. And so adoption has been on my heart and a part of who our family is for a long time. And here's where I want to be really careful today because I want to be honoring to adoption. I think adoption is a tremendous thing. I think there ought to be more adoption. But the reality is adoption is not enough. And too often when we look at adoption... We think that that's the only way. If the Bible calls us to care about orphans, that equals adoption. And there's no other plan. There's no other way to do it. See, the reality is 40% of all couples seriously consider adoption. Less than 1%, right? A fraction of a percent actually go through with it. I've got a close friend back home who's, who's just starting his family. He's got a three-year-old boy. His wife's pregnant with their second child. And as happens a lot as we kind of talk, he says, you know, I was thinking about adoption too. It's, it's been on my heart. And he says, and for us, I think we're really called to care for maybe, maybe a child who's had some sexual abuse in their past. And I think, man, that's awesome, right? If ever there's kids that need love, that need hope, that need stability, that's it. And so I was encouraging him in that, but he, he said, you know, so someday when we kind of settle down and when we've got our family a little more stable, then we'll probably adopt it. I'm just thinking, man, those kids are there now. Those kids need help now. Don't wait for just adoption. But we always tend to put it off and say adoption is the solution, and we don't realize that there's other things right in front of us. Now, let me go back to these statistics a little bit earlier. 17.8 million double orphans in the world. International adoptions, right? Those kids that have kind of been taken out of these really destitute poor areas and brought to the more developed world, as of 2011, or in 2011, sorry, those are the most recent statistics I could find, there were 23,000 international adoptions. So, guys, even if we grow adoption, and I think we should, I hope we do, it's not enough. It cannot be our only strategy. Because that leaves us with somewhere in the neighborhood of 17.7 million children that are still without a home, that are still without parents. Now, in working where I do at Compassion, we also kind of think a lot about development and development practices and, and kind of what's the long-term way that we can start to release these entire countries from poverty, not just rescue individual children. And so in development circles, there's this big idea of human capital. And the way that you're going to get out of poverty is to develop human capital. It's not about the resources. It's not about providing aid. It's about encouraging people that they have the potential, they have the God-given ability to make their life better than they know. And so when we take, if we would take in mass children out of these developing worlds and put them into into the Western world, you would see this kind of have and have not thing get completely out of scale. So you see, it doesn't even make good development sense to rob that human capital from the developing world. So the question is, if we believe that God has called us to care for the orphan, right? And that's everybody. That's not just me. That's not just the the small percentage of people that adopt. But we are all called to care for the orphan. So the question is, what do we do? 
Right? Do we take action or do we respond with apathy? I'm wearing this cute little bracelet today. This is not a Livestrong bracelet. This is from a friend of mine who sent this to me uh, in exchange for $4. I gave him $4, and this is actually related to Swaziland and some HIV training that they do there. And I think a lot of times that's kind of the, the length that we go for the poor and the orphan, right? If we look back at Isaiah 58, what I told you at the beginning, where Isaiah is, is lambasting these people for having a false religion, false piety. I sit back and I imagine myself side by side with Isaiah, just like, preach it, brother, let them have it. Give them both barrels, right? And I think that I'm on this side. And the reality is, if I would turn around, he's, he's talking to me. Right? Because I'm not actually living that life. I'm not living that life that I claim. I wear a bracelet and people ask me about it and I get to say, yeah, pretty involved in AIDS in Swaziland. I spent four bucks. I'm not saying bracelets are wrong or t-shirts or shoes or any of that, right? Advocacy and telling those stories is critically important, but we've got to understand that we've got to actually take credible action in some of these areas. Lest we're that church that's being spit out. Now that leads me to this little statement that I love. This is from the Luzon Movement. Luzon Movement is a collection of Christian relief and development organizations from around the world. And they had this this statement around children and young people. Children and young people are the church of today, not merely of tomorrow. That's one of the things I want you guys to make sure that you understand. Because when you're in college, so much of your time can be about preparing for the future, right? Your future's not there yet. And it's all about the decisions and lining things up. And then someday, one day, when you get out of college, that's when you'll get more active in whatever, family, career, ministry. But the reality is, guys, we need you. The reality is you guys are the church of today, not the church of the someday. You see, as I look back on my generation and how we used to do giving, how we would do ministry was basically, I'll give a check, or you can better yet take it direct deposit so I don't have to be bothered about it, and go do your ministry work, and that's great. I'm going to keep working in business. Right? Because our whole self was tied up in how much money we had and positions that we had, and that was a sign of God's favor on us the higher that we worked up. And what I love about your generation, and I apologize for talking like you're all one big thing, but, but research tells us that the millennial generation, just, that's distasteful. Right? We want to get involved. We want to get our hands dirty. We want to be involved in places where our heart and our head can come together, where our gifts can be put to use. Not let somebody else do it, but we want to do it ourselves. And that's a message, guys, that the church needs to hear. The church of today needs to hear that. So you need to be involved in your local churches here in this campus and be empowered that you are the church of today, not just the church of someday. See, Bryant Myers, who's a great developmental thinker, talks a lot about the role of the church. And I always think it's interesting, why in the world did God even ask us to care for the poor? Right? We're kind of inefficient. We're not very good at it. We're not always motivated to do that. Why didn't he just solve it? I mean, how many times have we heard, I would believe in God if it were not for this? I can't believe that a loving God would allow this to happen. You guys have probably heard that. You've probably even thought that. And the reality is that God has called us into this work. Right? He's called us not because he's unable, but because there's something, there's some benefit in it for us. There's some deep spiritual benefit in us when we align ourselves with the things that God is passionate about. And so Brent Myers in this, in this quote reminds us that God's work is not done. Right? God's story is not just about what he has done, but it's about what he is doing through his church. God is still writing the story, and incredibly he has invited us to participate in the completion of his project. God is working through his local church. The local church is us, right? It's, it's the body of Christ. He's working through the church, doing what he has been doing since the fall, working for the redemption, transformation, and restoration of human beings. Restoration of human beings, their relationships, and the creation in which they live. You see, God has been about those three things since Genesis, and it won't be over until Revelation. 
And the kind of cool thing is, although it's a scary thing, is that he's called us to be co-laborers in that. Right? We are about those same things. We are about the transformation, restoration, and redemption of human beings. So the question is, how do we do that? The World Bank, which I've kind of referenced a couple of times today, and they've got various degrees of poverty, and they've defined poverty, usually in economic terms. And they kind of found that they, they were just not making a big difference when they just tried to address the economic needs of the poor. So they actually did a large study. They asked 60,000 poor people, what do you say poverty is? And here's one quote that I love that I think kind of sums it all up. This is a poor woman, and she says, For the poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. Now, the interesting thing when you start thinking about poverty relief and helping the least of these is that we always think it's about providing stuff, right? It's always providing money or resources or giving them enough, but you don't even see that in here, right? This is a deep inner thing that she has no value, no worth, right? So these, these are the lies that poverty tells. And you can see that when you believe that about yourself, that you have no hope, that you're just living for food today and you can't even think about tomorrow, you can see how that just absolutely crushes the human spirit. i got a quick question for you. This is not a diarrhea question, so you don't have to be shamed to raise your hand. But how many of you have somebody in your life, somebody that maybe challenged you, maybe, maybe saw a gift or a skill that you had, right, and they pushed you in a new direction, maybe it was a coach, a parent, a friend, a teacher... Has anybody had someone counter? Are you thinking right now of a name of somebody who has made a difference in your life? Raise your hand if there's somebody like that. Now, what about a thing? How many of you have had that same power in your life for some thing, some possession? Yeah, not many, right? So it's interesting that we know that in our own lives. We know that we are changed fundamentally by relationships, by being in relationship with one another, by somebody letting us know that we are loved, that we are capable, maybe of more than we can see. And yet it's interesting that in development circles, we don't focus on the relationship. We focus so much on how much stuff can we give to the poor people. And we miss the main problem altogether because it's not about how can we, out of our wealth, help the poor who don't have any. It's really about a connection that God is asking us that we can learn from the poor. We must learn from the poor, right? We don't have the answers. We don't have it all together. We've got to engage with them, and the poor need to engage with us in the same way. So the reason why God has called us into this work is not because he's not capable, but it's because we need it as well, no matter where we are on the economic scale. Right? We are spiritually poor. Now, I made fun of my son's big head, so you probably can't read this. I'll read this to you. I made fun of his big head, so I want to brag on him a little bit because I really am awfully proud of him, other than his his head is too big. But other than that, he's a great kid. He's a sophomore right now at Dallas, Dallas Baptist going to school out there. And he probably, like a lot of you guys, has got this constant struggle with finances. right? So he doesn't have enough to pay for school every year, so he's getting a little bit more in, in debt. Every semester, he's thinking about transferring. He'd like to go to postgraduate school, so he knows that's going to be even more debt. So he stresses out all the time, literally to the point where he's got some bald spots in his head that are just stress-related is what the doctor tells us. So big head and bald. Well, I'm painting him out like a freak. He's a good kid. He really is. Yeah, I'll meet him someday. But Christian has committed that he is going to get involved, that he, he is going to tithe, even when he's got these tough financial 
constraints, right? He's working 30 hours on the grounds crew at the university as well as being a full-time student. Again, I think a lot of you guys can probably relate. But I love that he's decided that he is going to be a part of the solution. Now, it's a little bit easier for him maybe because of where I work. He's been able to travel and see kind of the work of compassion overseas. So he sponsored a little boy. He sponsored a boy, Irokose. And I let Christian know that, that a part of what he needs to do is make sure that he's speaking truth into this, this child because the sponsorship is great, but he's got an opportunity to actually disciple this kid halfway around the world. So Christian wrote him a letter. Right on the little bio, it said that he was interested in math. And so Christian was saying, hey, maybe someday you can be an accountant or, get, or you know, continue to study in that and see where it leads. And, and I love you, and I can't wait to be your sponsor and see what you're going to grow up to be and, and walk through that with you. And I think you know, you've, you've got great potential, and God loves you. It's kind of all that stuff that we kind of think, of, oh, it's a cliche after cliche, right? So Christian sends off this letter, and it's like three months later because compassion's crazy slow. I don't know how we deliver mail. So the mail gets there, and Irokose sends a letter back, and I get this text from my son. He says, my letter to Irokose was awesome. It said he makes someone read my letter to him every single day. See, Irokose is not so interested in all the stuff that he gets, but he needs somebody. He needs somebody to step into his life and tell him that he's loved, that he has potential, that tomorrow can be better than today. There's a great developmental psychologist, Yuri Bronfenbrenner, and Yuri Bronfenbrenner has written books and articles around child development. And he sums it up with this quote. With all the psychology and all the other things about what we can do with children, he ends it with this. First, last, and always, somebody's got to be crazy about that kid. If you want to know how to develop a child, if you want to know how to reach him, if you want to know how to live out James 1.27, right, to care for the least of these, it's to be crazy about a kid. Now, I don't know what your situations are, but I will tell you we are all called to do this work. And we're not called to do it someday, we're not called to buy a bracelet and call it good, check it off our list. It's, it's to be our lifestyle, right? God wants us to be in community, in fellowship with folks that are different from us, right? Folks that are on the outsides of our culture, our society, perhaps. But there are many ways to do that. Like with my son, one way is compassion, and that's kind of having a relationship with a kid halfway around the world. But likely, you guys already have those kids in your life, maybe that you need to be prioritizing. Maybe it's a niece, maybe it's a little sister, a brother that needs to hear about you, that hangs on every word that you say, because you're their big brother, big sister, and what you think means the world to them. And maybe you will be that person to say those words, speak those words of encouragement that can absolutely transform their life. Maybe those kids are at your, at your church, right? And you don't feel like you get to do much at church. You just kind of show up and you sit back and you listen to the sermon and then you walk out and you're done. But again, you're the church of today, so how can you get involved with those kids? How can you prioritize those kids in your midst? What about your community, right? We know there's great need in the community. Same thing. Are you going to wait for somebody to give you an opportunity or are you going to actually go and find it? Maybe you love playing soccer and you could get a group of, of folks together and play soccer and, and call the local Department of Family Services, right, the foster care, and say, are there any kids that would love to just come and play soccer at a park with us for, for four or five hours? That's something you can do. Guys, I just want to leave you with God's heart for the orphan is clear. There's no getting around it. We've got to make it a part of our lifestyle. And you guys are the church of today, not the church of someday. So the only question is, how are you going to do it? So I'd like to leave you with this one last thought. This is a four-letter word. It's a four-letter word that I've got plastered all over my space at work. And it's a simple little word. And it's just move. Because for whatever reason, it is so hard just to take that first step. 
right? We've got all these reasons why we're too busy, can't afford it, whatever it is. We, we just can't get involved. But the reality is, guys, you've got the power. You're the church of today. You can do it. You just have to take that first step. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for, uh, for the kids in this room, Lord, the, the heart. Father, I know the, the desire to make something of themselves, to make, make the world a better place, Father, and I just I thank you for that, that heartbeat. Lord, I apologize that I have not done enough, and even as I'm up here trying to encourage people to get involved for the poor and the vulnerable, for the orphan, Lord, I know that I fall short all the time, and Father, I just ask for your forgiveness on me. And Lord, for all of us that, that do a better job talking about how important our faith is, that, man, sometimes it's hard to see us even live it out. So Father, I would just pray that your Holy Spirit would be moving, that you would, you would put ideas and thoughts into people's heads, maybe an image of a child that they could have an impact on. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's just somebody, Lord, somebody who's hurting and wanting. And Lord, we understand that we are your hands and feet. Father, you've called us to partner in this because we have great need in our lives, and the only way we're going to get our need met is by finding you at that place of serving others. So, Father, as we leave this place this morning, we just ask that you remind us all to move, to take action, to be the hands and feet of your kingdom. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Thank you.